0: Hello, this is Tony Speaks, and this is my lovely wife, Kim. We are the founders and co-creators of the lifestyle brand and podcast, Becoming Disciplined. Every week we meet, learn from, and share best practices with highly disciplined men and women from a variety of fields and endeavors. Follow us on our journey. Then you're not going
1: to ever be able to really walk until you get that dealt with, if anything. So I tell people, treat it like other medical conditions. If you you had asthma, you wouldn't feel bad about having to have an inhaler with you. You just keep that inhaler. If you have diabetes, you don't kick yourself because you have to take insulin. You take the insulin and you thank God that he gave people the knowledge to develop it. It's no different with depression, with with anxiety, with psychiatric conditions. You just thank God that someone was given the wisdom and the insight to treat
0: this stuff, and, and you work on treating it. James Michael Smith is a Bible teacher, author, artist, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He leads a weekly Bible study through the books of the Old Testament. He also provides seminars and short-term courses in biblical studies, Christian thought, and theology in churches and ministries around the world. In 2015, he started Refugee Jitsu, an anti-bullying and self-defense program for refugee, immigrant, and lower-income kids in charlotte north carolina but most importantly of all james michael smith is becoming disciplined
2: today on becoming disciplined we interview james michael smith uh james michael welcome to becoming disciplined glad to be here thanks for having me amen amen so for our listeners i don't invite anyone on this show who is not disciplined in at least one of the following areas spirituality um mental mental fitness or mental rigor, physical discipline, emotional discipline, finance, calendar, uh, home organization, or data organization. Now, I've personally followed uh, JMS off and on for years, and I've always been blown away by the level of uh, personal discipline that he has displayed. Uh, JMS is the real deal. He is disciplined in several of these areas, areas, but this podcast has taught me that I might invite a guest on for one reason. But other treasures come out in the interview. So the areas where I think that JMS is is extremely disciplined on, I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna leave it to you to discover that for yourself. But before we talk about the issue of discipline, though, uh, for all of us who are Bible scholars or Bible uh, uh, aficionados, we know that context is everything. So James Michael, can you tell me about where you grew up and how you grew up? Yeah,
1: I grew up as uh, I grew up in the inner city in Savannah, Georgia. My dad was a pastor at a small storefront uh, church back in the late '70s that was planted to be an integrated black and white uh, joint community church. So, Inner City United Methodist Church. I was born we right across from the housing projects that we served, and I grew up in Savannah mostly until maybe middle school. Then I moved up to uh, Macon, Georgia. My dad got moved to another church up there. And so I was in Macon through college, uh, went to a college called Reinhardt, which is now Reinhardt University. It was Reinhardt College, then went on to UGA, go dogs! And um, then after that, uh, up to Boston to seminary for two years. And then I moved to Charlotte in 2003 to finish my seminary at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. So I graduated seminary 2006 here in Charlotte, but I've been in Charlotte here since 2003, but originally a Georgia boy.
2: All right. All right. All right. I can tell you some of the best food I've ever had was in Savannah, Georgia. They uh, they have some incredible restaurants there. Okay. And uh, and also, when you go to Savannah, uh, you know how everything has been globalized nowadays, where everything kind of looks the same down south. But in Savannah, they still have kind of maintained some of their autonomy there. They They, they look, you know, the food tastes a little different and they have their own little culture there. At least the last time I I think I visited there around seven years ago, eight years ago, and they still had their own Savannah culture. you know, I guess you could say,
1: uh, I got to go back there last year, back to my old neighborhood where I grew up. And um, it's like, we were right on the corner where the nice historic district turns into the projects, right? We were on that buffer, our, our church and the house above the church. So,
2: I kinda of grew up with one foot in, in both sides of Savannah. That is, that is interesting, that is really interesting. Now, question, can you explain to us the contrast that you had when you were at a, more of a secular institution and when you went to your seminary education? Well, so I started at a Christian college
1: for two years. okay, And that was pretty much like uh, just a normal, I mean, it was like a small college in North Georgia. And it was Christian, but largely in name only. When I got to the MBA, it was, I mean, it was much bigger, you know, going from a small private uh, liberal arts college to a state university is a lot bigger, but you still found the same kind of people, the same atmosphere. Um, so I, I didn't see much difference between my Christian college and then my uh, state college. Then when I went to seminary, Seminary was much more where I went at Gordon-Conwell was much more uh, ministry focused. So pretty much everybody there was either going into ministry, missions, counseling or on to biblical scholarship. So there wasn't it was a lot more serious. It Mm -hmm. was a lot more. um, I mean, it's graduate school. So obviously the whole party atmosphere is done with and everybody's moving on. And there were a lot of second career ministry people there as well. So classmates were older. Um, you know, some were right out of college like me, and then some were in their 50s and 60s and up. So it was very, very different. Seminary, at least at Gordon-Conwell, was very academically rigorous. We would have mm-hmm. students Harvard's um, Hebrew course come over and take our Hebrew course at Gordon-Conwell sometimes. Uh, we were able to go and register and take classes in other schools in the Boston area. So there's a lot of uh, just focus on academic performance. But... Because at seminary, the the mindset is do this for the glory of God, do this to serve the church, you know, not just about getting good grades, but about keeping it in a ministry context, which is what I really liked about Gordon-Conwell, one of the reasons that I chose that as a seminary I went to.
2: Mm. Now, um, part of your context, you know, sounds like you had a a very strong family life, but it sounds like y'all were positioned in an unconventional uh, uh, setting. Uh, So would you consider your, your upbringing traditional or unconventional? It was,
1: it was pretty unconventional. I would say it was, you know, grew up in the inner city. My sister and I, uh, I was born right when I was, we, my dad got to the church, his first church out of seminary, um, white pastor in a predominantly black neighborhood in the inner city. And, and then I was born like a month later, literally. So, In that regard, I mean, I didn't grow up, you know, me and my sister were usually the only white kids in Sunday school or in the neighborhood for a while. And, you know, so I kind of grew up with, it's not like urban, it wasn't like a high rise in Chicago or Manhattan or something, but it, we were the, the kind of token white kids in the class a lot of times. So that was not traditional for a lot of white Southern people. And then my parents were they were young. They got married when they were 19. Um, they had me when they were 25, had my sister when they were like 21, I think. And they were never, um, we never had like a picket fence, you know, never had dad would come home from work at the end of the day. And mom had been cooking. No, they both worked. Uh, we scraped by mom, sewed our clothes a lot of times made our clothes. Um, we, we looking back, we were definitely poor. We didn't know we were poor. I mean, my sister and I didn't really think about it, but Comparatively speaking, yeah, we weren't very well off, but God always provided. And my parents were good about not being a traditional or I should say not being a stereotypical preacher's family. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they gave my sister and I freedom. They encouraged us to question things. They, they never, you know, we, there wasn't pressure for us to act right just because we were the preacher's kids it was act right because you're, that's what kids need to do, (laughs) you know, act right because it's the right thing to do. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little traditional in some ways, but
2: also pretty unconventional when I look back on it now. Sure. Sure. And, uh, before I ask this question, context is important even to my question. Um, I want to stress, I'm not saying about bullying because you are in a black neighborhood. I will say that I've noticed that, um, typically whoever is the minority in the neighborhood that they can be bullied did you have to deal with a lot of that or did they did you get a little bit of a pass because you were pastoral children
1: um no it was it was just normal for us i mean i didn't get bullied i i was just you know i was obviously super super pale bright red hair you know i stood out but at the same time you know these were just these were all my friends so Sure. I never experienced any bullying. Um yeah, we'd get teased sometimes or my friends and I would get in an argument and then it would turn into a little 6-year-old race war <laughs> between us where right. we were yelling right. at each other, uh, you know, about stuff that we, we have nothing to do with us, you know, slavery and all that <laughs> stuff and right. we we just we were kids and it was the early 80s. So, I mean, this is the era of, you know, uh, Fat Albert and Bill Cosby and we we had this like you know, it was just a normal, the, the mixing of white and black. And, you know, it was just normal where we, I never experienced, I didn't experience a lot of it until I moved into a more, we moved to a, a town where it was more segregated. And so kids would only see each other at school, white and black kids would only see each other at school, never in the neighborhood. And so because of that, they didn't grow up together. So they didn't have those natural friendships. And so racial tensions, the the older I got and moved away from where I grew up, the more I would see it in places because kids hadn't grown up with each other. They weren't friends on the block. They were, you know, bussing into schools from across town. And you don't know these kids and they act different and they talk different and they look. That's that's when I started noticing, you know, racial tensions and, and bullying and things like that.
2: But I not firsthand for me. It wasn't that way. Now you had a unique uh, upbringing. When did uh, when did you kind of like have an epiphany regarding you know kind of like what black people have to go through in America and the, a lot of the bias and a lot of the things that are stacked against uh, a Black America? When like when did that when when was that like a revelation or or when was a period of time where you were like oh wow you know this is this isn't this isn't really uh, this isn't fair. It, it would have been it would have been later in life
1: when I actually thought about it. When I when I got older and started thinking um, the high school I went to was in Macon, Georgia. So Macon was a very segregated city. Naturally, I mean, you know, black neighborhoods tended to stay black, white neighborhoods tended to stay white. And so there was a lot more overt racism in that area. And I started. I don't know, like maybe piecing things together, seeing the experiences of my friends and then probably into college when I'm when I get into college and I'm able because, you know, in middle school and high school, you're not thinking about greater global issues. You know, you're thinking about you're going to you know pass this test or you're going to ask this girl out or, you know, which team is winning. What's, that's what you're thinking about when you're a kid. Usually right. it's around college when these things start becoming like, hey, I'm, I'm getting grown. I need to start thinking about the world. So it would have been college and seminary that these issues started kind of popping back up and and being like, hey, give this some thought. Um, Certainly since then, uh, as getting out of seminary and being in ministry, seeing it more. But I, I don't know if there was a single moment. There's just always been an instance. You know, I know there's certain things that I can get away with that my friends who are black or Hispanic would not be able to get away with in certain areas, you know, like walking around a store, not getting followed, not getting looked at, um, not being treated like a danger or a threat. It's just, it's a reality. And I, it's something that I think, you know, especially white Christians, we don't need to, you know, one thing that really gets on my nerves is the, is the liberal white guilt where everything like we're the worst we're awful we're this or that and I can understand why people on the right get annoyed with that because it's annoying but that doesn't mean that you then say well there's no such thing as systemic racism or there's no such thing as uh, I use the term right systemic racial injustice is very real it's very evident you don't even need to go far to see it um I just the more it, it wasn't an epiphany moment it was just seeing the world and being like yep that That seems about right, yep that's that makes sense. Yes, that is a completely valid critique and and yeah, we need to do something about this
2: right that's that's awesome, that's awesome. That's good, great input and the reason why I ask is even though it's a little off topic, I think it's a very unique um perspective because a lot of times um a lot of times at least in white America. They're viewing African American culture like just through media. and you actually grew up in the neighborhood. and uh, that that you know you have a unique perspective from that standpoint. So that's why I asked. Um, but but going back to the topic of discipline, though, who was the most disciplined person in because just so everyone's clear, James Michael Smith is one of the few people uh, who i you know, I really look up to as being a really disciplined person. Um, who, who was the person that was very disciplined when you were in your early childhood that, that someone that kind of was a, a role model for you, like, I'm, I'm going to follow that path or this was inspiring or that was inspiring. Who was that person in your early childhood?
1: There were, there were probably a few people. Uh, my dad was very disciplined in his study and he was, I mean, I grew up, so I grew up surrounded by books. This is just normal life for me. Um, and because it was what we had at home, dad's study and, and books everywhere. And so he was very disciplined in that. Most preachers, when they finish seminary, they don't ever pick up Hebrew or Greek ever again. My dad constantly was reading, constantly studying commentaries, staying up on biblical studies, cultural studies, issues, everything from abortion, same-sex marriage, all of these ethical pastoral things that, that a lot of you know, pastors just kind of forget when they get out of seminary or they think, well, now I'm done with that. I can put the hard stuff away and stop studying. And that's why you get a lot of pastors who just don't know, you ask them a question and they don't know a good answer. So mentally, I would say dad was very disciplined in that regard. Um, I think socially, and this is a weird way to phrase it, but socially disciplined was my mom. And what I mean by that was my mom showed me how to fit in where you are how to adapt to situations that you can't change how to handle the turbulence of life and the unknown in a way that's still winsome that that doesn't freak you out that doesn't fluster you so my mom and she would never think of it that way as being disciplined in that but it for me it instilled a kind of a role with things this is how you have to you just have to adapt and you and and to me i think that takes some discipline because some people just get freaked out by anything they can't control so those are kind of two two poles of the magnet so to speak that that formed who i am and then my uh, two others my first uh, martial arts instructor my first karate sensei he was somebody who taught me physical discipline mastery over your body um you know over your emotion over all the stuff that martial arts teaches he instilled that in me uh, you know i was probably Eight, nine, ten—in that in that age range, late elementary school, early middle school, which is a huge formative time. And at the same time that my martial arts teacher was inspiring me in martial arts discipline, I had two youth pastors who were young guys that uh, they lived with my family because we we lived in the parsonage right beside the church. And so sometimes for like summer interns or, or for like a year or so. The youth pastor would live in our guest room, and I had two youth pastors in particular, uh, Jeff and Brian. They really showed me um, spiritual discipline in the sense of not just studying your Bible and reading your Bible, but in studying scripture, reading scripture, but then in living a Christian life intentionally, intentionally being uh, faithful and taking things seriously, spiritually speaking. They, they really did, probably more than anybody else. So those, those my, my mom and dad, my karate instructor, and then my uh, youth pastors in middle school had the most impact of probably any adults in my life um, before or since.
2: Wow. Well, they say it takes a village, right? So uh, that's yeah. definitely a great cadre of people. Now, uh, you mentioned something I never knew before. Uh, before jiu-jitsu, you took karate. How long did you take karate before jiu-jitsu?
1: Yeah, I did. I, I took, well, I did like one little program at a local rec center for maybe six months when I was seven. And it kind of, the instructor was never connected really well. And it it was just kind of something that I, you know, no big deal. But then when I was, it would have been fourth grade, I think, um, fourth or fifth grade, somewhere in there, I they another instructor came and um, Ronald Frazier Sr. He was he was trained. Um, if, if you ever remember the old UFC, Ron Van Cleef, who's the black yes. dragon, he fought in the early UFCs in his 50s. Well, my instructor was in that lineage. Mm. So he um, started a program, a Shotokan karate program, and I started doing that. And just I, I mean, that was that was my life until like elementary school through middle school. That was my life. I competed in tournaments every month um i had a subscription to black belt magazine watched every martial arts movie we could find like me and about my instructors two sons and my best friend that lived across the street we were like that was our life for those years and it was in the heyday it was it was right after karate kid came out right on the cusp of when ninja turtles was coming out so it was in that time where karate was still this mysterious thing sure people thought you know so it was the perfect time to start, and I, and I did it all the way through college. I, I, I moved into Taekwondo, and um, my my whole background was traditional martial arts, and then I found jiu-jitsu in my late 20s, and that's been what I focus on since.
2: Now, question, um, knowing all that you know and, and being in martial arts for as long as you've been in martial arts, is it painful to watch shows like Cobra Kai?
1: I love Cobra
2: right. Kai. Okay. Kai, I love Cobra <laughs> Kai. I will go on.
1: That's one of the best TV shows that's come out. Yeah, this is the thing. When you when you don't know martial arts and you watch like a like karate kid, okay, I'll use the first original karate kid as an example. Right. You think it's amazing. And because it's an amazing movie, it really is an amazing movie. Sure. Then after you learn martial arts, when you go back and watch the martial arts they're doing in it. It's ridiculous, right? Right. And it's the same thing with Cobra Kai, like the stuff they're learning and teaching, very little martial arts that actually happens on the show. Mm -hmm. And the martial arts that does happen is really bad. And, and, but they're all actors. None are actual like straight up martial artists. So I just look at it the way, probably when doctors watch Grey's Anatomy or, you know, lawyers watch, uh, you know, some law drama That's how I look at it as a martial artist. When I watch a movie with martial arts in it, I'm like, okay, the martial arts is probably going to be terrible. But how good is the, you know, the writing and the characters and the plot? And that's that's what makes me love. Like, I love Cobra Kai. So they did so good with it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cobra Kai amazes me because I look at the martial arts portions and it just looks so slow and like, so bad. Uh, but then for some reason, I just can't stop watching it. And it's, the
0: you know, and, and
1: they're hilarious. Yeah. The whole, yeah. I mean, they, they did what this is, I tell you what, this is why The Mandalorian is also such a great show because they took That's the source material and they stayed true to it, but developed it in a different direction. They didn't try to redo everything, they didn't try to make everybody super woke, they didn't try to update everything for, they, They took what the fans originally loved about the franchise and they just ran with it and said, yeah, let's keep going with that, but take it in slightly different directions. They did it with that. They did it with Mandalorian. And boom, those are two of the best things that have come out of 2020 by far.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I can tell you my best friend when he watches this podcast, he's going to probably fall over because he's from Macon. And then also on top of that he's a pastor's son and he's a huge mandalorian fan so his name is john reed so john this this interview is for you my brother this interview is for you so um now keeping all of that in mind um, uh, you know you're, you're a great scholar did you always have those strong study habits or did you discover them in college when like was it you know dad was a was a scholar Uh, when did you actually learn like the the process or the actual, Hey, this is how I, you know, this is how I study this. This is how I analyze this. This is how I get organized for tests. Who taught you that?
1: It was, it was, it's funny. It was very late uh, in life. To clarify, I, I, I understand the popular usage. I don't use the term scholar for myself because I don't have a PhD and I'm not published in any journals or anything. So I, I. I, I do see what I do as scholarly, but I am not a scholar. and I, I just always like to make that real clear um, so that, you know, because a lot of people pass themselves off as things that they're not. I, my, I just have a master's of divinity. I am a, a lay uh, avid teacher. I just say Bible teacher, but um, I, it's funny. I was an art major in college. I, I did painting and drawing. So I didn't do any, I did very little studying in college. I probably wrote, five maybe six papers ever total Mm. Uh, because my classes were art classes I was drawing and painting you know all kinds of stuff for years so I got to seminary and I had to in seminary they just assume you know how to write papers you know how to do research I didn't know how to do that stuff Mm. My, my first paper uh one of the girls that that was in class with me who was a friend of mine she, she said, hey, you want me to proofread? I was talking about somebody proofreading. She's like, yeah, I'll proofread your paper for you. And she sent it back to me. And it, I mean, I can't even, I wish I still had a copy of it because of how many mistakes there were. And, how, and she was like, you can't do this. You have to do this. This is how you footnote. This is how you quote a paragraph. This is how, because I had no idea. I was just trying to write the way they write in books that I had read and but not knowing exactly how to do it. So my first paper was a disaster. She fixed it. I turned it in. I got a good grade on it. But I wish I still had that paper because I had no idea what I was doing. And but I'm pretty good at adapting and learning and picking things up quickly that are kind of intuitive or at least that are logical. And so I was able to very quickly say, okay, this is how the people that I'm reading and learning from. This is how they write. This is how they research. This is how they think. And so it kind of that, you know, that shaped who I was. But, yeah, I never had any. It, it was seminary. I was in my 20s before I learned how to actually write a proper paper.
2: OK. All right. That's good to know. That is good to know. Now I'm going to go. I'm going to take a, a, a giant right turn here. But uh, the reason why I'm going to do that is because it's a it's a cornerstone of, of discipline. and I, And even though it's a cornerstone of discipline, we get a variety of different answers on this question. Uh, among really disciplined people that we interview. So my question is, are you a good sleeper? And if you are, when and where did you develop your current sleep habits? Yes, I am a terrible sleeper. Oh. I actually
1: have been, um, I I have medically, I don't get good sleep. I've seen a sleep specialist for years. Um, I we, we don't exactly know. It could be a byproduct of uh, antidepressants that I've have to be on because I'm pretty open about my uh, struggle with depression and anxiety and mental health. So there are a number of things that ever since after college, uh, I've never gotten good sleep. I I probably haven't gotten good sleep since 1998, maybe 97 somewhere in there. Uh, I don't sleep well. I take medication to help me sleep most nights and uh, my sleep schedule, my, my sleep. if, If a normal person got eight hours, and is ready to roll. For me, my, if I get eight hours, it's like a normal person that got four, um, I just don't have good quality sleep and yeah, sleep, sleep and I are, we have a love hate
2: relationship. Amen. Well, uh, that's it. We're around half and half here. So half <laughs> of the people we interview are great sleepers. And then the other half are the, are the stable geniuses that stay up all night and cannot shut their minds down. So, so we're around half and half and, and I interview, you know, people who I consider pretty disciplined and um, you know around half of them are excellent sleepers and half of them they have a hard time shutting it down at night. So uh, that that's uh we're running 50-50 here. Mm-hmm. So uh now can we explore your uh your uh life with depression or your experiences with depression? When did you know that you were struggling with depression and when did you know that it was it was uh something that is like a medical condition, and then uh, along with that, what advice do you give to someone who, uh, when they're hearing what you're going to talk about, that that uh, they need some help? What advice do you have for them to get them some help?
1: Yeah, I I got diagnosed right after college. I spent a year as an intern at a campus ministry. After I graduated college, I stayed on, so I was basically like a campus minister um, for a year. And at the end of that year is when I had um, a kind of severe or I started to get anxiety that would come on me, anxiety attacks, not like heart racing kind of anxiety, but just this existential dread and these questions that my mind would just start spiraling and, and I would just be overcome with panic. Um, and I just, you know, I, I was like, this is demonic. This has got to be, you know, let's, you know, pray against this and bind this and do all that stuff. And it, nothing, nothing wrong with trying it. But my dad, was like, yeah, I'm taking you to my psychiatrist because depression runs in our family and anxiety and insomnia all run in our family. So you're going to go see my doctor. And I was like, I don't want to see a doctor. I don't want to be depressed and have to be on medicine and blah, 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 you know, the thing that most people put out there. And, but I went, psychiatrist diagnosed me, said, you, you have depression, anxiety, more to the anxiety side than the depression side. Uh, so we're going to start treating it. And we tried, you know, different medications. And we had to fine tune it. It wasn't, it's not an overnight fix. Like it's, it's a series of you know months and sometimes years where you're refining and tweaking and getting things right. But it, the whole world changed in terms of my, the heaviness and the feeling of dread and, and meaninglessness and not wanting to get up and not knowing my purpose and all that stuff. That's just trademark depression. It lifted. And in my case, there wasn't any deep counseling that was done. There really wasn't any counseling that was done. There wasn't this, let's pry into your childhood and see what this is about. Let's examine your relationships. Let's say, for me, it was, hey, your brain's not making enough of this chemical. Let's get your brain what it needs. Just like somebody with asthma gets an inhaler, it helps them open up their lungs so they can breathe normal again. So for me, the antidepressants got my brain chemistry back to normal so that I could think and live life again. So I, my advice for people struggling with depression, for some people, it is situational. For some people, it has to do with trauma in their childhood or relational habits that they have that they need to work on emotionally. But for a lot of people, it is a biochemical issue. Mm. And I tell people that are struggling with it, the first thing that I think you should do is go to a competent, licensed, medically uh, gifted Psychiatrist not a psychologist and not a counselor, but somebody who knows the science and the medicine and has experience in it and let them see If this may not be at least a chemical issue at first Mm. Because otherwise it's like telling somebody who's in a wheelchair. Hey, just walk it off You You may be able to stumble around you may be able to crawl around you may be able with crutches to kind of hobble but if the thing if your legs are not working then you're not gonna ever be able to really walk until you get that dealt with, if anything. sure. So I tell people treat it like other medical conditions. If you you had asthma, you wouldn't feel bad about having to have an inhaler with you. You just keep that inhaler. If you have diabetes, you don't kick yourself because you have to take insulin. You take the insulin and you thank God that he gave people the knowledge to develop it. It's no different with depression, with, with anxiety, with psychiatric conditions. You just thank God that someone was given the wisdom and the insight to treat this stuff and and you work on treating it. Now it's not the same for everybody. Everybody's depression is different. Everybody's anxiety is different. There's schizophrenia, there's bipolar, there's postpartum, there's seasonal, there's all these different types of depression. But don't, the worst thing, the worst advice that a lot of Christians especially give is just pray it away. Just, just pray hard and it'll lift. Just have joy in the Lord. Just read scripture more. I'll tell you, none of those things helped me until I got actual professional help and then those things supplemented it. Um, So, you know, can God heal people like that? Absolutely. Does he always do it? No. Does he usually do it? No. So I tell people, don't take the stigma away from it. Just treat it like you would, you know, diabetes,
2: asthma, any other medical condition and go get help. Amen. Amen. Yeah. What I tell people uh, in my pastoral ministry, I tell them I can help you with your software, um, you know, with, you know, studying God's word. But I can't uh, I'm not gifted in helping you with your hardware. And uh, we need to send you to someone else, you know, a Christian psychologist, a Christian psychiatrist to help you with the hardware. Because I can't I can't help you with the hardware. Uh, And sometimes there are hardware issues there. Where, uh, like you said, biochemical uh, things that that may be off.
1: No, sure. think about being transparent on mental health issues for sure.
2: Amen, amen. Because I've struggled with depression as well, and uh, and uh, it, you know, you can get in that darkness and you can feel like there's no way out. And uh,
1: I you, there's, there's there's two. I'm gonna I want to recommend two books for anybody that's struggling with it. There's a book called Bright Days, Dark Nights, and mm-hmm. it's about Carl Spurgeon's depression. Okay. And he was one of the first preachers in, in church history to really take on depression and teach about it. So, sure. Bright Days, Dark Nights was a good one. And then there's another one called Darkness is My Only Companion. And that was an Episcopal priest. She was diagnosed with bipolar and it kind of chronicles her wrestling with being institutionalized and dealing with depression and, and being clergy at the same time. Those two books for anybody, especially anybody in ministry or Christian life that's struggling, those two books had a phenomenal impact in just letting you know, hey, guess what? You're not alone in this, and you're not the first person to experience this. And doesn't make you less of a Christian or less of a leader that you are going through it. So those are those are two phenomenal books. I highly recommend.
2: Uh and and thank you because uh, at least in my ministry right now, mental issues. Are just exploding, you know, different type, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia, dementia. It seems like it's just exploding at this period of time. I don't know what's causing it, but uh, it, there seems like there is an explosion.
0: This was just part one of our dynamic interview with James Michael Smith. But in the interim, if you can't wait until part two to reach out to James Michael, you can reach him at jmsmith.org where he draws... You can also reach him at Discipledojo.org where he teaches. And finally, you can reach him at HenzoGracyCharlotte.com where he trains.